BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd, cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Jack Smith not only has Trump's Twitter direct messages, he has Trump's Twitter deleted direct messages. And as we posited here last Thursday... Jack Smith also has Trump's Twitter unsent direct message drafts. We will return to Atlanta presently, but CNN and The New York Times last night confirmed the obvious without realizing they were also confirming the tantalizingly important. More court papers were unsealed, and yes, when Jack Smith got that court order to scrape Trump's Twitter account, he was looking for Trump's direct messages of which, CNN reports, there are many. The Times then got closer to the true significance here. Quote, the lawyer for Twitter told Judge Howell that the company had found both deleted and non-deleted direct messages associated with Mr. Trump's account, which would probably explain Trump's use of the word atrocity when somebody finally told him about this, which was apparently only last Sunday. But then the Times writes, almost as an afterthought, that the judge had authorized Jack Smith to receive, quote, all direct messages sent from, received by, or stored in draft form by the account. I speculated also about this last Thursday, but I have to say seeing it in print as a reality takes my breath away. I mean, deleted direct messages are enough to fuel several books of Trump scandal fan fiction. But the drafts, 
What have you left in your drafts on Twitter or anywhere else? The drafts could be far more nefarious. In fact, they could be intentionally nefarious. Drafts could be used, and there is no evidence that this is the case, but it could be. They could be used the way terrorists used to use drafts in emails 20 years ago as what the spies call a dead drop by which you leave messages for anybody else who happens to have your password. And then after the message is read, it is deleted. Except nothing is ever deleted, deleted. Something else Trump apparently only found out on Sunday night. If nothing else, this is a reminder that as slovenly and careless as Trump has been with his hundreds and hundreds of crimes and the mile-long trails he leaves every day in office and out, there is always the probability that there is further evidence which we don't know, but which now Jack Smith does know. And in turn, and I have said this for a year, with Trump, whatever we think it is, the odds are strong that it is far, far worse. Now back to Atlanta. Trump will present his irrefutable, guaranteed, 100% exonerating report on presidential election fraud in Georgia, starting at 11 next Monday morning at his golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey. Enter by the main gate, proceeds towards the first tee, and then make a left at Ivana. The larger point is that nearly every Republican does not want Trump to again use up all the oxygen in the room on relitigating 2020 for the millionth time. And to that point directly, but the headline here is Trump has hit the bottom of the conspiracy barrel. This new report that he is flogging, 100 pages of it, is reportedly the work of like the the 79th string propagandist on the Trump roster, where once he had Roy Cohn where once waddled William Barr, and then John Dowd, and Ty Cobb, and even the dubious likes of Sarah Huckabee and Rudy Giuliani. Donald Trump has placed his future in the hands of Liz Harrington. The New York Times quotes unnamed sources who say this Georgia election fraud report, and I understand copies will be available at the Trump Bedminster Pro Shop for $49.95, was at least partly Liz Harrington's work, and she has been preparing it for weeks. If her name is not familiar to you, once she was the blonde, fairly articulate, heavily hairstyled spokesperson for the Republican National Committee. But then the slightly strange look in her eyes got far stranger. It's hard to precisely describe. It kind of looks as if she is staring at you while desperately trying to not let you realize that she sees a ghost right behind you. One day, Liz's TV booking started to dry up, and Liz Harrington and that really disturbing look in her eyes disappeared. But two years ago, after Trump left Washington, she reappeared, now brunette on one side of her head and mostly blonde on part of the other, then later all brunette, and without being sexist or judgmental, you would no longer describe her as heavily hairstyled. To cut to the chase, she now looks nuts, 
and possibly hypnotized. Georgia has among the most corrupt elections in the country, Liz Harrington tweeted last night, a rare instance of her tweeting anything besides screenshots of Trump's social media posts. And they haven't gotten better since 2020. They've gotten worse, which is interesting. But Trump's point is only about 2020. Then a postscript. Tune in Monday, which is, in fact, what Republicans, even true Trump believers, maybe not as crazy as this Harrington, but even them, it's what they don't want there to be anything Monday to tune in for. Three times Trump has been indicted or reindicted on the federal level without resorting to relitigating the election fraud confidence trick. But the Georgia indictments are apparently irresistible to him on this point, and he is going to hold a news conference at which he will again yoke the GOP with the albatross that is the 2020 election non-scandal when even the craziest of its congressmen and candidates want to talk about 2023 and 2024 and Joe Biden and anything but another Trump scam. Now, anything Fonnie Willis left undone last Monday, Donald Trump will finish for her next Monday. He has metaphorically hanged himself and taken the Republican Party with him. He writes that it's, quote, a large, complex, detailed, but irrefutable report. Report is in all caps, like an email scammer would capitalize million dollars. And all of a sudden, we are back to the embryonic version of political Donald Trump, insisting that his investigators had found irrefutable evidence that Barack Obama was born in, I don't know, wherever, Canada. And then insisting that his new investigators had found really irrefutable evidence, or as the old Monty Python joke goes, the object of this expedition is to see if we can find any traces of last year's expedition. Moreover, Trump actually slipped from his usually precise and expert Professor Harold Hill patter, and he gave away the con to the Marks. Never give away the con to the Marks. The indictments are, quote, already election interference, but if the trials are held before the election, then it would be interference on a scale never seen in our country. So the trials, quote, should be brought after the 2024 presidential election. Oh, in other words, the indictments are the worst thing in human history, and the election interference is the worst thing in human history, and the trials, oh, the trials, my God, they would be worse than the worst thing in human history. But... If we have to have them after the election is okay, see my secretary for the dates. We know why he would say that, but he just gave the marks their first clue that he will live up to the guidance of Winston Churchill and never give in. Never, never, never. Except this one time. How many of them understand the clue is debatable. It was, of course, the district attorney who put the first hole in that Trump fantasy world of victimhood and martyrdom and paranoia because she indicted Trump and 18 others. But the whole premise has been that Trump is being indicted, being prosecuted to keep him from being president. Well, Rudy Giuliani isn't running for president. He was indicted. Mark Meadows isn't running for president. Trevion Cootey isn't running for president. Misty Hampton isn't running for president. Sean Still still isn't running for president. Robert 
Chile isn't running for president. Frankly, that's all I know about Robert Chile. Trump and his flying monkeys were immediately reduced, and we saw this yesterday in the morning. They were reduced to claiming that Fonnie Willis was now prosecuting Trump's supporters in Georgia, and you might be next. And as much as that might scare the more childish members of the cult, the trade-off is not worth it. Trump is not the only target. People who aren't even employed by him have been indicted, and suddenly Trump has to fight for legroom up on that imaginary cross he has so meticulously built for himself. Fonnie Willis did something Jack Smith hasn't even tried to do. She's pierced not just the Trump reality by indicting it, she's also punctured a lot of the fantasy. She's reduced him from the solo martyr to just the head of a group of con men and con women who've been spending most of their lives living in a Trumpster's paradise. Thank you, Nancy Faust. No, I'm not singing Trumpster's Paradise. All right, I'll think about it. Lesser headlines and details out of the Atlanta and Florida cases. Atlanta, there is actually another judge in that city besides Robert McBurney. Scott McAfee, new to the Fulton County Superior Court bench, will handle this case. He may be perfect. In fact, he may represent a way out of judicial partisanship. He is a Republican, but he was appointed by Governor Brian Kemp, who slammed Trump again yesterday. But but he used to be a prosecutor working under the leadership of Fonnie Willis. But, 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 he used to clerk for two Georgia State Supreme Court justices, both Republicans, and one of them once clerked for Antonin Scalia. Judge McAfee has so many seeming conflicts of interest and political taints that they cancel each other out. Meanwhile, defendant Mark Meadows wants the whole case, or at least his part of it, transferred to federal court because he claims whatever he did, he did while acting, quote, under color of his federal office, which would be a good argument, except that as Just Security's Ryan Goodman notes in Act 96 of the indictment, they quote a Meadows text message to a Georgia state investigator. Is there a way to speed up Fulton County's signature verification? Meadows wrote, in order to have results before January 6, if the Trump campaign assists financially, unquote, which is a horse bleep of a different color, isn't it? Trump has yet to file to get the trial moved to a federal court, and it turns out he might not, because even if it were transferred, it would still be considered a Georgia state prosecution and not federal, and thus not subject to being dismissed by the Department of Justice now or later, and any guilty defendants in that case could not get pardons from any president, even if it is transferred to federal court. On the other hand, there was a lot of confused reporting Monday about a mandatory minimum statute on RICO charges in Georgia, and I contributed a little bit to that, I think. While there is a minimum figure for a prison sentence, there is also lurking in the Georgia law a judge option to convert actual prison time into probation. And we are back with another edition of the popular brain teaser, Trumple 
where we try to identify the unidentified co-conspirators. Nobody won the first round. Number six from the first round is still unidentified. So the prize total rolls over to this one. But you have to guess all 30 of them. There are some early no-brainers. Number eight is identified as somebody Rudy Giuliani retweeted with the quote of the tweet. That was tough. A quick search proves that is the current Georgia Lieutenant Governor, Burt Jones. Number 20 is somebody at the infamous December 18th Oval Office shouting match. The former FBI man, Pete Strzok, is certain it is either Mike Flynn or the overstock guy, Patrick Byrne. And incidentally, there is widespread belief that Byrne may be cooperating. Number three was at a Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell press conference, and additional evidence says that of several choices, it's Boris Epstein. Now, since there are still 27 slots to fill and not that many conspirators who weren't indicted, you got to guess Lindsey Graham and Tom Fitton have to be in here somewhere. There is some indication Fitton has pride of place. He may be unidentified co-conspirator number one. Doesn't say anything about a too tight polo shirt. Also, this formality from the Mar-a-Lago documents case, Carlos de Oliveira finally has a Florida attorney. Let's hear it for him. So thus, he finally has a plea, and shockingly enough, it's not guilty. The rest of this story to the moment is something difficult to convey on a podcast. It is the smell of desperation. The Trump circle and America's fascists in general seem to be having a much harder time with Georgia than with the federal indictments. And if you're wondering why, you can probably figure it out by examining the online reaction to the last line of Trump's post about the irrefutable Georgia election report, Harrington L. author, with the 76 trombones and also the new monorail attached. Quote, they only went after those that fought to find the riggers. Unquote. R-I-G-G-E-R-S. Riggers in caps. Can you guess what Trump's white supremacist base is now using rigors as a synonym for? The reactions overall are a kind of mini worst persons. Tim Poole, the guy in the beanie, actually the P, I believe, is pronounced like an F. So that would be Tim Fool, responded to the indictments by tweeting civil war and then later answered another fascist by writing, you are in a civil war. Ben Shapiro was entertainingly hoist on his own petard. Whatever you think of the Trump indictments, one thing is for certain, the glass has now been broken over and over again. Political opponents can be targeted by legal enemies. Running for office now carries the risk of going to jail, unquote, which, oddly enough, was advocated for on a Larry King show of all things in 2014 by... Why, by the same guy who just denounced it, Ben Shapiro. I'm not sure we could indict Washington, but I think that uh, certainly... I'm sure there, something was done. Uh, Washington was relatively clean, but, it, but, it, but if you look at, at you know George W. Bush, or if you looked at Bill Clinton, or if you looked at Ronald Reagan, sure. I mean, the answer would be that, that you could, and, and people should be wary. I mean, this is, this is sort of the case that I'm making, is that we've become so comfortable with the executive branch of the government abusing its citizens and violating our rights and violating what they're structured to do under the law that we've just become used to it. And, and if we start treating them as criminals, maybe they'll think twice before they act so criminally in the future. Normally, Ben talks out of both sides of his mouth in far less time than nine years. 
Charlie Kirk, the guy with the ever-inflating Charlie Brown head, told the Republicans to threaten to shut down the entire government in response to all this, quote, say that no spending is getting passed until this crisis is resolved and this effort to criminalize the political opposition ceases, which seems like potent strategy until you remember that most irreplaceable federal spending is done in the red states and that any actual full government financial shutdown would mean defaults and maybe bankruptcies in those states within weeks and maybe food shortages within months. But you do you, Charlie. Alina Haba told Fox that she disagrees with those warning Trump that the Atlanta indictments are a perilous threat, quoting her, We do not agree that it is a perilous threat because we actually have inside information. She then said she could not say what the inside information was. I think we all know what it was. It's the Liz Harrington report. There's a ghost. There's a ghost behind you. But the all-time Lulu of comments so far is from no less a figure than Marjorie Trader Greene. If there was not going to be an actual Trump press conference Monday, don't park there. That's Ivana's grave. Uh, All right, give me $5. You can park there. If there were no press conference scheduled Monday, I would say this quote would be unbeatable in the faux pas competition going forward. Either way, this quote is still stunning. Bonnie Willis should be going after child sex predators and traffickers. Bonnie Willis should be going after murderers, rapists. Bonnie Willis should be going after rapists, Marge? Rapists? She is. Also of interest here, the new biography of Tucker Carlson is out, and if you have not raced out to buy it, consider yourself part of the vast American majority. It tanked, and I mean tanked. I'll tell you how much it tanked, and okay, obviously this is already necessary. I'll explain who Tucker Carlson is. Who Tucker Carlson was. That's next. This is Countdown. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. 
Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions, Dateline Atlanta. There has been a Herschel Walker sighting. For the first time since July 2nd, he has tweeted something. For the first time since February 7th, he has tweeted something touching on politics and not sports or vacations. Don't you remember he was the Republican candidate for the Senate in Georgia last year? The new tweet? Wow, what is going on here in the great state of Georgia? A little bit more specific, Herschel, going on about your Senate campaign, about your son, about your other kids, about their newfoundness, about Matt Schlapp, about the greatest soundbite of the 2022 election season, and you did mean election right? Well, first of all, this election is more than Herschel Walker. This election is about the people. Well, first of all, this election is more than Herschel Walker. This election is about the people. Well, first of all, this election is more than Herschel Walker. This election is about the people. Well, first of all, this election is more than Herschel Walker. This election is about the people. Ah, wise words stand the test of time, Herschel. Dateline Amazon, the biography of Tucker Carlson is out. Remember Tucker Carlson? America has answered that question, and the answer is who? Publishers Weekly reports that the much-hyped bio by worshipful propagandist Chadwick Moore of Tucker Carlson sold, in its first week of availability, 3,227 copies. Not just on Amazon, that's everywhere. And that was good for 57th place Among biographies, the Kindle version didn't even make the top 100. On the publisher's weekly hardcover nonfiction list, the Tucker Carlson bio was 15th. Well, there's your problem right there. It would be number one on the hardcover fiction list. Still ahead on Countdown, so I get into the office and they say, did you take the subway? And I say, no, I walked. And they say, good, because a guy got stabbed in the subway. And I say, yikes. And they say, yeah, but they caught the guys who did it. They arrested 41 people. Life at a radio network in Times Square in New York in 1981. Next. 
First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Bronze, Elmo, Elon Musk, per the Washington Post, if you've tried to link off Twitter to, say, the New York Times or Facebook or something at Blue Sky or Reuters, and the phone or the laptop just sat there, Twitter had installed a five-second delay. Throttling is the technical term, because Musk, who if he wasn't paranoid, wouldn't have any personality at all, was mad at those sites. Times, Blue Sky, Facebook, Reuters? Okay. After the Post called this out, some of the throttling was discontinued late yesterday, and that is your free speech absolutist in action. Now it is clear that when Musk said absolutist, he thought it had something to do with absolute vodka. Runner-up Ron DeSantis. Remember Ron DeSantis? Governor Florida? Still, I guess? The 2023 Scott Walker Award winner? The one who fought with Disney? Sued Disney, cut off their input into governance, trashed them, etc.? I guess either that has now rebounded against him or it has lost its effectiveness because now Rhonda has gone on CNBC, says he appreciates working with Disney, that he and his wife got married at Disney World, and he says, let's just forget it. Quote, we've basically moved on. Drop the lawsuit. You have the state that ranks as number one for no economy. Let's move forward. Yeah, Bob Iger should move forward. He should move Disney World forward to Puerto Rico. But our winner, Sage Steele, announced she is leaving ESPN after 16 years. Life update, I have decided to leave so I can exercise my First Amendment rights more freely. Ah, here we effing go. Sage Steele wouldn't know the difference between the First Amendment and the ESPN show First Take. What happened was she hadn't been on ESPN for nearly two years after her slow habit of internally trashing everybody she worked with, then externally trashing some of them, then trashing COVID vaccines, then trashing COVID vaccine mandates, then trashing Barack Obama, then trashing transgender women in sports, then suing ESPN and Disney. That slow process got a little faster. This June, it was reported ESPN had filed a motion to dismiss her lawsuit against them because virtually all broadcasting contracts make it clear they don't have to play you, they only have to pay you. Steele was reportedly offered $501,000 to settle the lawsuit, and her attorney said that had been rejected, but now six weeks later, I have decided to leave so I can exercise my First Amendment rights more freely. Okay, for the millionth time, the First Amendment is about you being punished for your speech by the government. Not being punished for your speech by, you know, Chris Berman. What? But Sage Steele would never accept that because she knows everything and everybody else knows nothing. I worked a couple of sports centers with her in 2018 and 2019. And at one point, I asked an ESPN executive named Dave Roberts why the essence of the show had been changed. We used to look for moments in the old days in which one anchor would finish a story and the other would start one and the other could throw out a quick aside or a sarcastic but friendly bit of snark about what the other one had just said. But now there were things called stamps. 
full sound blocks of play-by-play calls or player comments that seemingly appeared every time one of the anchors stopped talking and the other one was about to start. I didn't mention Sage Steele's name, but I did say the stamps were blocking us from talking to each other, me and all of the co-anchors I worked with, and Dave Roberts answered, that's why we have them. Have you heard our anchors talking to each other? Have you heard Sage Steele trying to talk to the other anchors? Given how little I actually worked with her, there were a surprisingly large number of moments when I got, as another producer put it, saged. Here are two of them. One of the top ESPN executives did an interview in which he said I was the greatest anchor sports center ever had. Debatable. Top five, three, two. Anyway, who goes into that executive's office but Sage Steele? Quote, some of the nighttime people object to you calling him the greatest to do this, she told him. He asked her who those nighttime people were, and she wouldn't tell him. He not only told her that if she wanted to change the all-time rankings, maybe she should do better on the show, but he then told half the people in the company about what she had done. And the other story is we were literally seconds to air with me in New York and Ms. Steele in Bristol when the producer asked me to write a, like a 10-second version of a story that was just breaking to headline the show as a quick tease. I wrote it, and suddenly, in my earpiece, I could hear Sage Steele's voice talking to that same show producer, and in that voice was a mixture of rage and disbelief. What's this? That's not how we do things. I talk first. Make him rewrite it. It had not occurred to her that 20 seconds to air, they would have already opened her microphone and I would be able to hear her. I then said, hi, Sage. And she said, uh, and then dramatically shifted tone. KO, so good to hear your voice. Have a great show. I have decided to leave so I can exercise my First Amendment rights more freely. Using her definition of First Amendment rights, which is talking trash at work and not being responsible for any of it, it is not physically possible that she could exercise them more or more freely anywhere else on the planet. Sage, although she would fit in nicely on Fox, except she and Will Kane hated each other at ESPN, steal today's worst person. In the First Amendment world! BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in, so you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Just ahead, so you know Times Square, right? Disneyland, only it's in New York and it has pizza. Could you imagine a Times Square so desolate and dangerous and full of porn theaters that there were no restaurants open in Times Square on the weekend? And I worked there, and I used to have to bring in food from the rest of the city for the whole office. Things I promise not to tell next. First time to feature another dog in need. You can help. Every dog has its day. In fact, it's a lot of dogs and cats and animals of all kinds, at least 3,000 of them missing, And we don't have to claim that their plight is as important as that of the humans who lost so much in Hawaii. But the dogs and cats and the others matter too. The Maui Humane Society is, as you would expect, inundated. And the dogs and cats there now are the lucky ones. They're trying to treat the injured and reunite the lost. And they have started a fundraiser on Giving Grid with what is not an especially ambitious goal, $10,000. Anything you can do to help will be gratefully accepted. Find the Maui Humane Society at Giving Grid, or I will tweet out the link to the animals of Maui. Thank you, and I thank you. Now from the files of things I promised not to tell, and I recently went past the building, my second professional home, and I was flooded with my memories of a place called the RKO Radio Network. This is 1980, and I'm nearing my 22nd birthday, and I'm working real hard at one radio network run by the United Press International Wire Service in my second year and making around nearly $20,000 a year. And in September, a drunken manager had tried to get me fired, tried to fire me himself for being young. And I'll be damned if I can remember getting consecutive days off there. This was UPI in a nutshell. For my first few weeks there, I thought whoever had decorated the newsroom had found the floor tiles with the ugliest design pattern in history. And then finally, I saw a colleague grind his lit cigarette into that floor. And only then did I realize that was what the ugly design pattern was. Hundreds of ground out cigarettes. Years 
and years of ground-out cigarettes in the tiles. Anyway, the main advantage to working at UPI was that everybody in what was then a flourishing radio business knew UPI, and thus they knew you, and they knew you were underpaid. The top all-news radio station in the country, WCBS in New York, had already asked if I might be a candidate for a coming opening in their sports department. The previous spring, I'd actually interviewed with two vice presidents at this thing, the yachtsman Ted Turner, who owned the Atlanta Braves, was going to try to start something he called Cable News Network. But they were not initially interested in me, and after meeting with them, I was certain they would never get it launched, let alone get an audience for it. I was working there literally 14 months later. I'd also been flown to Boston, like they spent $55 on me by a radio station that really wanted me to do a morning sports shift for them, and they were offering $40,000 a year, twice my salary, and I was ready to do it, and I was sitting in the office in Boston trying to figure out where I could live and how late I could sleep and still get there in the morning. And then the news director said, now, except if there's a big story, you can do the afternoon sportscast from home over the phone, which is when I realized I was supposed to do the morning and the afternoon, I was essentially on the clock from 5 a.m. to 6 p.m., and the $40,000 would have had to go to my sister because the schedule would have killed me within three months. And then there was this RKO radio network. UPI was in the unique position of having RKO as a client, so RKO heard and used our stuff all the time. And also, they had, from their beginning, used our UPI feed as a kind of 24-7, constantly flowing, turned-on spigot audition service. From the time I got to UPI in July 1979, it seemed like one radio person from UPI per month was hired away by RKO. Sometime in the early autumn of 1980, I was covering a New York Rangers game at Madison Square Garden, and the guy next to me, smoking a cigar inside the garden right in front of all the fans, turned out to be the sports director of this RKO network. In fact, he was the entirety of the RKO sports department. But we're doubling in size. I'm going to start doing weekend sportscasts, and I get to hire a new person to do the weekends. Mm, it's a union shop, so it's $51 a sportscast after. There's 10 a weekend, so you get uh, 22 for any dollars for reports for uh, reports from the field, and, and you'd be my backup. 22 bucks from the field. And a guarantee of 510 a weekend. And you got to come in uh, one day a week uh, to book the stringers for the weekend games. Uh, that'd be free. But the guarantee is $26,000 plus those uh, $22 every time you file a report from the field. You interested? Well, I did some quick math. This was about 40% more money for about 40% less work. And there were no 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. schedules. When the sports director called me back a few weeks later to offer me the gig, I did not hesitate. His name, by the way, was Charlie Steiner. Charlie would later be a colleague of mine at SportsCenter, and then he did the Yankees games, and now he does the Dodgers games, and he's been a friend for 42 years. The network itself was also space-age shiny and new, and it had carpets. Whereas UPI had the stubbed-out cigarettes decor, RKO was literally the first radio network in this country to deliver all of its programs to its stations via satellite. No more scratchy, hyper-expensive phone lines. RKO came through crystal clear, and that was our pitch to the stations. All the newscasts, 
All the sportscasts, all the features ended with the same tagline. Via satellite, this is the RKO Radio Network. And then a spot for Hubba Bubba Gum. For my first few weeks there, part of the job also included doing two sportscasts a day for RKO's local station, WOR. The first time I went up in the elevator to their studio, it dawned on me that it was the exact same studio where seven years before I had been invited by the great comedians Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding, along with my dad, to sit and watch in amazed appreciation as Bob and Ray did their show on WOR. So basically, as of December 1980, I had accomplished all of my childhood goals. The only problem with the place was the location. RKO was on the southeast corner of Times Square, probably the low watermark in the history of Times Square. It was in 1440 Broadway at the corner of 40th Street. There was a back door at 41st Street and 6th Avenue right across from Bryant Park. On those occasions, when I filled in for Charlie Steiner on the weekdays for his morning show, which they would tape overnight... I would often be at the studios until 2 or 3 a.m., and my walk home was a, a little sketchy. In point of fact, I would not walk home. I would run. I mean run, run, from that back door at 41st and 6th. I'd pass Bryant Park on my right as fast as I could, past all the drug dealers and other folks, then dart on the north side of 42nd between 6th and 5th. And once you got to that corner of 5th and 42nd, you were back in civilization with good street lights and other people on the streets, no matter how late the hour, or as we called them in New York then, witnesses. Occasionally, I might have to walk in Times Square itself, usually when it was daylight. What surrounded me there was about as far from today's Disneyland East Times Square as you could imagine. In fact, you could not imagine. There were porn theaters everywhere. And it wasn't just porn theaters. They were spaced apart, and in between them, other businesses existed. Porn peep shows, porn sex shops, and porn video rental stores. I remember always making sure I was walking on the outside edge of the street, nearest the gutter, on the premise that in the event somebody tried to mug me, I stood a much better chance by running right out into automobile traffic. Besides which, I used to worry that if I walked too close to the porn theaters and the shows and the shops and the video stores, one day I might just get stuck to the sidewalk. Times Square was so different in 1980 and 1981 that I really can't imagine that the annual income made there from anything but porn and the RKO radio network was more than $20 a year in total. There was nothing else. I mean, nothing. On weekends, walking over from my home on the east side, I would decide which fast food place I'd be getting lunch from. Somewhere on Fifth Avenue or Lex, I'd go to the nearest payphone, I'd call the RKO newsroom desk, and I would offer to bring in food for everybody for the simple reason that in Times Square, 40 years ago, there were no restaurants open on weekends. I'll say that again. In Times Square... 40 years ago, on the weekends, all the restaurants that existed there were closed during the day. And forget public transportation to Times Square. I would finish my brisk 25-minute walk to work one night in that frigid winter of 1980-81 and see my colleagues looking unusually pasty and drawn. 
You didn't take the subway in, did you? Asked one of the editors, Tom Ryan. I looked at him like it was crazy. Well, good. Some guy got stabbed by the stairs closest to our building. I asked if he was okay. No, he's not okay. He's dead. But they got the guys who did it. They arrested 51 people. One guy got stabbed to death. 51 people were arrested. I asked if they had been restaging a reenactment of the assassination of Julius Caesar. Still, the equipment was brand new and easy to use, and the staff was all young. We all had fun, and we had parties, and everybody lived in the city, and for the most part, it was a pleasure to work there. And it was way more lucrative even than Charlie Steiner had suggested. Those $22 voice reports from the field, they piled up fast. The baseball players went on strike that June 1981, and every time I covered a bargaining session, I could be certain of at least another $44, and if that doesn't sound like much... The rent on my very nice studio apartment never got higher than $498 a month. RKO's location also provided me with some wacky logistical problems. I filled in for Charlie on most holidays, plus I did the same thing at a local radio station, WNEW. This made the actual Christmas into my metaphorical Christmas. If I had to fill in for both of these operations on the same day, my schedule went like this. Get into RKO in Times Square at maybe 2 a.m. Tape Charlie's morning show by 4 a.m., then walk across town very quickly to WNEW over on 3rd Avenue and do those sportscasts live between 5.30 and 9 and then go home and maybe take a nap, but not a long one because I would have to be back at RKO by 1 p.m. to do Charlie's afternoon show. Rinse, repeat. A lot of work. On the other hand, just one week of those days paid the rent for two months. On a wet New Year's Eve 1981, I treated myself to a cab to go to RKO, which put me in the bizarre position of getting into a cab on the east side at 1.30 a.m. New Year's morning and saying, take me to Times Square. And the driver saying, you missed it, buddy. It's been 1982 for an hour and a half. Nothing like being the only person going into Times Square while one million people are leaving it. Drunk. Most of the sportscasts I did at RKO were pretty textbook, but there did come the day that I walked in to fill in for Charlie, who was at Wimbledon, so this is the summer of 1981, and the newswires were full of this story of some unnamed American radio reporter getting into a brawl with a London tabloid writer at a Wimbledon press conference, and it slowly evolved that the reporter was Charlie, my boss, and we were going to have to figure out a way to cover this. At first, Charlie wanted to do it in the third person and say, the reporter did this, and the reporter said that, and I said, you know, I really don't think we're going to get away with that. Given how much wire copy I'm seeing here, Charlie, this is probably going to be on the front page of the New York Times in the morning. Sure enough, it was above the fold. Worse still, unbeknownst to Charlie, his fight took place in a corner of the Wimbledon press room, right under the camera that fed out a shot of that room 24-7 to every television network in the world. Sure enough, the last item on ABC's 6.30 newscast that night with Peter Jennings was a feature on Charlie Steiner fighting with the British over how they broke up the John McEnroe post-match press conference, and he was pissed off because that meant he wouldn't get any sound bites from McEnroe. I managed to run home from RKO and record the report by Dick Schapp, and when Charlie got back from London, I loaned it to him. 
This was in July 1981. Charlie still hasn't given me the tape back. Every time I see him, he swears he's still looking for it. It's in a box somewhere. But I'm beginning to think he may not be telling me the whole truth about what happened to my video cassette. But my favorite RKO story is about Charlie's sudden and inexplicable obsession with the story during that 1981 baseball strike I mentioned. In the middle of this thing, which stopped the season for 50 days and was really, really the beginning of the end of that time when baseball truly mattered in this country. When every day of that strike, somebody on all the TV newscasts said, and the baseball strike is in its 23rd day, a story broke that George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, was going to meet with baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn and a couple of other owners who realized that the work stoppage was financial madness. As George told me years later, he was losing about a million dollars in revenue every day so that the Milwaukee Brewers could save $5,000 in salaries every year. Well, my boss, Charlie Steiner, decided he was going to scoop the world about this secret Steinbrenner-Kuhn meeting, so he told me to come into the office on one of my off days and work the phones. Work the phones, son. Two of us, me and the newly hired producer, my friend John Martin, were supposed to call everybody we knew and find out for Charlie when these guys were meeting and where and who would be there and to not go home until we had nailed it down. Well, it was madness. I didn't know anybody in baseball, let alone anybody who knew where the owner of the Yankees was going to meet in secret with the commissioner of baseball, let alone who knew all that and would tell me. But I tried everybody I could think of and had already suggested to John Martin that I was just going to start dialing 10 digits at random and asking whoever answered if they knew when, after about eight hours of this, well past my dinner time, I was on the phone with some executive of some West Coast team when he said, hold on a minute, I've got another call. And a moment later, from the adjoining room in my office, I heard John Martin say, hey, Mr. Smith, hi, this is John Martin from the RKO Radio Network, and, uh, yes, RKO Radio Network. Yes, I'll hold, sir. Mr. Smith picked up my call again and said, is this really two of you calling me about this crap at the same time from the same network? And I said, yes, and I apologized, and I told him I was going home. If Charlie doesn't like it, I told John, he can fire me. So follow me on this. Because I had missed dinner, when I got back to my street on the east side, I was famished. I don't know, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock? The last two blocks of my walk home was always identical. I'd come up 3rd Avenue and then hang a right at the southeast corner of 3rd Avenue and 55th Street. I lived at the other end of 55th Street near 2nd Avenue. But now I was going to go pick up some pizza in a very nice place on the northwest corner of this same block. I got the slices, the lights changed, and now I was crossing towards the northeast corner of 55th and 3rd, which itself was the home of a famous New York bar, P.J. Clark's. Ordinarily, I would never have been on that side of the street at that hour, but there I was. And as I slipped past the ancient front door, I saw the side exit open and a burst of bright yellow light, like in an Edward Hopper painting, shoot out onto a limo waiting on 55th Street. And as I walked, carrying my box of pizza and wearing my RKO Radio Network black jacket, who emerges from that light of that side door at P.J. Clark's but George Steinbrenner in a tux? 
I gasped. I tried to summon the courage to approach Steinbrenner as he walked towards his limo and ask him about his planned meeting with Commissioner Kuhn, and just before I admitted to myself that no, at the age of 22, I did not have such courage, I saw Steinbrenner stop at the limo, and I heard him yell back towards the light shining through the still-open side door to Clark's. Eddie! Eddie! And with that, Edward Bennett Williams, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, leaned out, also in a tux, and said with evident exasperation, What now, George? Steinbrenner shouted, What time are you and I and Childs meeting with Bowie tomorrow? I, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my luck. Williams had not seen me. Steinbrenner had not seen me. Williams sighed again. For the tenth time, George. 9.30. 9.30 in the morning, George. 9.30. Bowie's condo. I now plastered myself against the wall of Clark's. I hoped they had not seen me at all. Without so much as asking the question, I had learned that the Orioles owner and Childs, Eddie Childs, the owner of the Texas Rangers, they would be accompanying Steinbrenner to the meeting, and it would begin at 9.30 at the condominium of Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. And I was wondering if I could try to fake Steinbrenner's voice and shout, Eddie, where is Bowie's condo again? When suddenly I heard Steinbrenner say, Eddie, where is Bowie's condo again? By now, Edward Bennett Williams had relit a cigar he was holding. George, write it down this time. 575 Park. 575. I could barely breathe. Good God, they had handed me everything but the cross street. Eddie, Eddie, what's the cross street? Williams now swore, oh, for F's sake, George, 63rd, 63rd and Park, 575 Park at 930 in the morning, okay? Steinbrenner got into the limo. It squealed off. The door closed. I wrote what I had heard on the top of the pizza box and took off at a dead run to my apartment at the corner of 55th and 2nd, pausing only to take a quick bite of pizza. I called John Martin back at the RKO Radio Network. I got it. John said, you got what? I got everything about the meeting. John said, I'll get the boss. Soon, all three of us were on the phone. Charlie did not believe I had gotten him any information, so I laid it on thick. You writing this down, boss? 9.30 tomorrow morning. It's at Bowie Coon's condo at 575 Park. That's the corner of 63rd, of course. Then there was silence at Charlie's end of the phone. Oh, and... Uh, Edward Bennett Williams of the Orioles and Eddie Childs of the Rangers, they'll be there too. I, I don't know, Charlie, if it's just them or there are others, but, but those four will certainly be there. Bowie's condo, 575. Cross Street is 63rd. Charlie started to make a kind of butt, butt noise. But, 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 how did you find out? How in the hell did you actually find out? Why do you think it's true? I had been waiting for this for several moments, and my answer had been rehearsed in my mind at least as far back as my elevator ride up to my apartment. With the most nonchalance I had ever mustered in my life, I answered Charlie Steiner. Well, Charlie, I, um, I ran into Steinbrenner at Clark's. <laughs> A 
I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from our studios high atop the Sports Capsule Building in New York. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend John Dean. Everything else is pretty much my fault. Let's count down for this the 952nd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. Plenty of time left in this week, huh? The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and via satellite, good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in, so you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.